The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. Well, if you want to follow along in your Bibles or in your Bible app to the Gospel of Mark, um, it's one of my four favorite Gospels. <laughs> and this is the first one that was written, and many believe that Matthew and Luke are borrowing much from, from Mark and adding to it. Um, so you, maybe you wonder, just as an intro to remind you, who, who is John Mark? Who, who is Mark? And um, I would tell you a couple things about Mark that just by way of reminder, um, first of all, he's, he's Barnabas's cousin, and he is Mary's son. Now, there's a lot of Marys, but this particular Mary, we're, we're given reference in Acts 12, and if you remember Acts 12 is where Peter is about to be killed uh, by Herod. He's in prison, and the church is praying. And they're at Mary's house. This is John Mark's mother's house. And they're praying there, and there's a large gathering. And when Peter is freed, he goes, do you remember, to the house, and he keeps knocking because they don't believe that it could be Peter at the door. So when Rhoda answers the door and says it's Peter, she doesn't believe it, goes back and tells him, uh, or, you know, and he has, keeps knocking on the door, and they just didn't believe that God would answer their prayers so quickly that Peter would be released. Well, that's... That's at Mary's house. Well, scholars believe also that it was this large house that it's where the beginning of Acts was. There's 120 gathered praying. Where were they praying? Mary's house, John Mark's house. Okay, then you go back to the upper room and you say, where was that? Mary's house, John Mark's house, probably next to his bedroom somewhere is where the Last Supper took place. And so Mark is a, is a pretty uh, central figure here. And then we see that at the end of 1 Peter, which we looked at last week, Peter makes a reference calling Mark my son. And so uh, the early church fathers from, from Irenaeus to Papias, the church fathers, and, and Wikipedia... They all, call, uh, they all acknowledge that Peter uh, had a great influence on Mark. And so that these were Peter's sermons, of which Mark took great notes. And then Mark is now putting together a gospel for us that's heavily influenced by Peter. And what's interesting is that we're told in this gospel that it's just the beginning. And it ends so abruptly. If you believe in the short ending of Mark like I do, that it ends early on in Mark and the rest of it's this add-in section that I won't be preaching when I get there because I think it's, I don't believe those are in the original manuscripts. But it, it just basically ends with the resurrection and, and go tell the disciples and Peter, he's one too. And then it says, you know, the, the women are afraid and they rushed off in haste and that's the story ends. Well, why would it end like that? Because it's just the beginning. What is this? We're told the beginning of the gospel. It's just the beginning. It's still continuing. And so when you think about uh, the kingdom of God, which this whole book is going to be about the kingdom of God and the king and his kingdom, it's Jesus. Um, think about like a movie. When you go to a movie and if you get there early, which we rarely do, 
you get there early and they'll show you like eight or nine previews of movies. And usually, Kim and I, if we watch these, we usually, if they're watching the preview, we're just like not interested, not interested. And then there's one or two that are like, definitely want to see that movie. That looks so good. Um, because you've seen enough of the, of the sneak preview, you've seen enough of this that it's like it has whet your appetite. This is what the kingdom of God is like. You are giving the, the preview of what the new heavens and new earth is going to look like. You are giving snapshots of what a restored kingdom looks like on heaven and earth. You're gonna see people healed, people that can't talk are talking, people that can't hear, hear again. Dead people get raised, demons driven out and restored to life and you're seeing the kingdom of God, what it looks like when it breaks in and you say to yourself, I want the real thing. I don't wanna just see the preview, I wanna see the real thing. And you're being given the preview here. And another cool thing about a movie when you, when you watch a movie, sometimes the director will put himself into the script and he'll into the movie scene and you get a little cameo and you just love that, right? Alfred Hitchcock puts himself in there and the Marvel guy, he will insert himself and you're kind of looking and there he is. Well, guess what? John Mark has done that for us twice in Mark 14. He has inserted himself so when they're given instructions about how to have the Lord's Supper and how are we going to do that? And Jesus just says, well, go into town, go to a man who's going to be carrying a jar of water and follow him to his house. Who would that be? John Mark. And then we're told at Jesus' arrest that everybody flees, and, but there's one particular guy who's got the great spin move, and they grabbed his tunic, but he spun, and now he's naked, and he runs off, and guess who that is? John Mark. He gets two cameos in Mark 14, and the scholars believe that's Mark. He's inserting himself into the text, but he doesn't even want to mention his name because it's not about him. It's about Jesus, and all of this gospel of Mark is like this is like the, the reels or the TikTok videos where they're just little short cameos and you see, you know, just a quick snapshot here and a quick snapshot here and you're, you're watching this and sometimes if you just watch a little reel or a video, it can lift your spirits, right? I saw one today or yesterday of someone, it was just otters going down a slide and it was one after another and they just keep coming and they are having so much fun. I'm like, doesn't that not lift you? I mean, God made otters to just have fun. Somebody sent me a clip this week of my son, actually, of a bear that came right in a store, grabbed the candy, turned around, and opened the door like he knew. Like, this is how you'd open doors. You just pushed it right open, and, and the title was, hey, you going to pay for that? It was like this bear knew exactly what he was doing. Well, we like watching these little clips because they're just little things, but they leave a memory. That's this gospel. This gospel has very little didactic. It's all action. It is all quick hitting, four, over 40 immediately. And you're going to get eight of them in chapter one and three in those little verses that I'm going to read to you. And so let's get this first snapshot because they're all going to be about Jesus. There's two little mentions of John the Baptist here at the beginning and then chapter six. But then we got to move on from John and it's all about Jesus. So let's take a look together at these first 13 verses. The beginning of the gospel 
the euangelion, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. They pray for us. Father, we ask for help. You said all the scriptures... Lord Jesus, speak and testify concerning you. And so we ask that you would help us to see how this passage points to you, Lord Jesus, and how all these Old Testament passages pointed to you. We pray that, Lord, these things would change us from the inside out, that you would baptize us with the Holy Spirit, that there would be a washing and a changing from the inside out that we would be new creatures in Christ and that we would live as genuinely new. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I titled the message, How Is This Good News? Because you have to ask yourself the question as you're reading along the first verse and it says the beginning of the good news. Here it is, good news. And you, you get through these first 14 verses and you're like, how is this good news? I mean, there's this strange guy that's mentioned named John. There's no mention of his origin, no mention of his parents, no mention of his genealogy or Jesus. And he just shows up in the wilderness. And we just keep getting told about in the wilderness. I mean, is the voice crying in the wilderness, verse 3? He baptizes in the wilderness. Then the Spirit drives Jesus in verse 12 into the wilderness. And then he's in the wilderness 40 days. So certainly Mark's trying to tell us something about the wilderness. And at first thought, you're thinking, well, is this like Bear Grylls? And John the Baptist is like Bear Grylls, and he, he, he's described like him with eating locusts and wild honey. And then, but Jesus is even a greater Bear Grylls because, you know, he's with wild animals, and he's in there 40 days. And so you're thinking, is that the good news? Is that Jesus is greater than Bear Grylls? And to begin to understand, like, what does this mean? I think we have to go back and put our good Jewish uh, vision of the good life. Everybody has an eschatology. The Jews had an eschatology in Jesus' day and in John the Baptist's day. And an eschatology just means a theology of the end times. And I think it's a great question to ask people, even if they're not a believer, what, what's your view of the future? What do you think is going to happen? It's a great conversation piece 
What is your view of the end times? What do you think is going to happen? Because the Jews had a, had a serious end time theology, right? They knew that a Messiah was going to come. And the Greek word for that is a Christos, where we get Jesus Christ in the first verse. He is Messiah. So we're getting a tip off in the first verse. The good news, the Messiah, this is you believed he's coming. This is the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent through the seed of the woman. He's going to be the son of David. He's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And, and then things aren't really going so well. They're under the thumb of, of the Rome, and they're hardly ruling as a kingdom. And so they're looking for this Messiah that's going to come. But they also knew that there's going to be this forerunner to the Messiah, and Elijah is going to come back. I mean, we're even told in Mark chapter 9, where they're coming down from the transfiguration, and Jesus looks at Matthew, Mark, or Matthew, um, not Matthew, Mark, Peter, James, and John, and he says to them, why do the scribes first say that Elijah must come? He knows their eschatology. And, they sa and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased. So, hmm, Elijah didn't come back literally as they thought, but someone came just like him, and that would be John the Baptist. And so they have this, this that's our, kind of our first hint, is that if you're kind of like, if, you, if you're trying to put the puzzle pieces together and, you're, and you, you first want to grab the corner pieces, here's the four corner pieces of this text if you like to draw a puzzle. One is that John the Baptist equals Elijah. And I'll flush that out in a minute, but all of those first seven verses is all about Hey, 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 everybody, look and see. I'm not just talking about John the Baptist. He's, he's the Elijah who's going to come. This is it. This is, this is your theology. He's going to come and restore, and now he's come, and it's John the Baptist. So that's the first corner piece. The second corner piece will be the wilderness, and the wilderness is a huge theme, and the wilderness is where Israel went on a honeymoon, and the honeymoon went bad. Because he loved them, and he delivered them from the Red Sea, and he made them his bride. And they went on the honeymoon, and it was in the wilderness. And that's what Hosea, and Hosea 1 and 2, and you know, he's going to lure them again in the wilderness, but he takes them into the wilderness. But everybody knows that this honeymoon didn't go well. It was 40 years where Israel has failed again and again, complaining, moaning, grumpy, idolatry, turning away, wanting new leader, wanting to stone Moses. I mean, the whole book of Numbers is, is telling you this terrible tale of what literally happened, and it was bad. So, that, so Israel's where, or wilderness is where Israel failed, but the wilderness is where Jesus is going to succeed. So you have to recognize that Jesus has come as the new Israel, there's a new something, and he's the Israel of one who's going to be perfect, and we'll come back to that. And then you have the beginning theme, okay? So that's the next corner piece of your making your puzzle, is the beginning theme is God's doing something new. He's making new creation, and it's not just going to be some outward perfunctory thing that you do. He's going to baptize from the inside out, and, he, and it's, this gospel begins with the beginning. This is something new. 
And then the last one is that this Jesus is the Son of God. And that's how this text begins, just declaring that He is the Son of God. And so, you know, as I was saying, the, the, the people of God, they have this theology, and they know the last verse of the Old Testament. They probably know it better than we do. If I were to say to you, what's the last verse of the Old Testament? What's it talking about? Well, you go back to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Elijah's coming. So they know that. They know that's coming. And they know that from Ezekiel 36 and Joel 2.28, God is going to pour out his spirit in the last days. There's going to be a pouring out of the Spirit. There's going to be a forerunner who's going to come. There's going to be a Messiah who's going to come. Those are all the things they know are coming. And so here, here Mark is, is saying all the clues, all the puzzle pieces are lining up. It all points to Jesus. And so Mark starts with the beginning. And only two other books of the Bible begin that way, Genesis and John. And they both go back to creation. And they go all the way back to the beginning. And Mark is going to tell us about the new creation. A new beginning. And at the very beginning, even these first verses, there's the first 13 uh, 13 verses, there's this inclusio of kind of a recreation. Here's where I'm getting with that. It's called the beginning. But then you get to Jesus, and you wait, wait a minute, he's not in the garden He's in, the, he's in the wilderness. And there's Jesus in the wilderness, and he's with the wild animals. And it's this picture of Genesis 1 and 2, where Adam and Eve are with the animals, and they're naming them. Oh, and we're, we're told this prophecy in Isaiah 11 that the Spirit of God will rest upon the Messiah. It's the Spirit of wisdom and counsel. And, and what's going to happen when he comes, when the... When the Spirit comes down on this Messiah. Well, it says things like the lion's going to, the wolf's going to lay down with the, with the lamb. The child's going to put his hand over the adder's nest. And basically, you're going to have, you have all this picture in Isaiah of a renewed creation. And so that's what you're seeing here is that, wait a minute, Jesus is with the wild animals and they're not eating him. He's giving you a picture of what the new, the restored creation is going to look like. And so the Spirit of God's going to be poured out. The kingdom of Israel is going to be restored. But interestingly, and, you know, they weren't wearing their mega hats. You know, make Israel great again. And it wasn't about make America great again. It was about make God great again. And the greatness that he's going to bring in isn't going to be a, it's not going to do it through political power. He's not going to do it through kicking out Rome. He's bringing this invasion that he's bringing, the whole of chapter one, as we'll get to next week, his first encounters are with demons. And as soon as he's empowered with the Spirit, and the Spirit is, is inaugurated him, you've been anointed, and now you're, you're immediately tested in the wilderness. Straight to the wilderness you go to battle with Satan himself, because if he's going to bring in this good news of gospel, somebody's got to win the battle for you, because you certainly didn't win it with Israel. We're all failed in him. And so you get this repeat of the beginning. 
And it's interesting that it even says the Spirit descends on Jesus at His baptism like a dove. And that takes us back to Genesis 1-2. The Spirit is doing what? Fluttering like a bird over the waters. The Spirit is involved in creation and now the Spirit is coming down. And it's coming down for the new creation upon Jesus. And so now... We have Mark telling us right from the get-go, he quotes Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 40 verse 3, and, and he's quoting them when he says, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then it just says, John appeared. So John is this messenger that is the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. And who is he preparing the way for? What's the text say? He's to prepare the way of the Lord. Isaiah 40, verse 3. And if you go back to Isaiah 43 in your Bible and you read it, it just says that this forerunner will prepare the way of Yahweh. He's going to prepare the way of Jehovah. So this is the verse I always take Jehovah Witnesses to. When they come knocking on my door, I take them right to the beginning of Mark's gospel and I say, who is John preparing the way for? He's preparing the way for Yahweh, for Jehovah. Jehovah's come in the flesh. Would you like to be a Jehovah Witness? Because Emmanuel now is with us. God is with us. It's Jehovah. Jehovah's come in the flesh and you don't even believe he's God. And how are you going to get righteous with God? He's giving us a God righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we could become what? The righteousness of God. You have to have a God righteousness. And so what could you give me that I don't already have in Jesus? You have nothing to give me. I have something to give you. It's the good news that Jesus has done everything. And he's the one that's being proclaimed by John as God is coming. And, we're, and the call to worship this morning was what? I mean, we're just told the good news that the glory of the Lord, that all flesh will see the glory of Yahweh. That's the good news that Israel's hoping for. And now John's saying he's come. The beginning of the gospel. Here it is. And here is Jesus now, the beginning of the gospel. And Jesus has come and we're told he is the Son of God. Well, how does the gospel end? The gospel ends with a Roman centurion crying out, seeing Jesus been crucified, and he says, truly this was the Son of God. And what's so significant about that? Well, the significance was, if I can find it, here it is. New Dictionary of Biblical Theology led me to this. That when Caesar Augustus becomes uh, enthroned, we are told that um, the wording said about him was the beginning. Uh, it echoes the language, verse 1, it echoes the language of the imperial ruler cult as seen in the inscription in honor of Caesar Augustus. So when he was born, here was the good news. The birthday of the god Augustus, who was the beginning for the world of the good news. And so Mark is trying to say that actually it was a Roman that confessed <laughs> that he's the son of God. Not you, Augustus. Not you people that are following this. 
and that what you were proclaiming as a myth, now the good news is truly good news, that Jesus truly is the Son of God. He is the good news. And what's interesting is that now Christians are being persecuted when Mark is writing this. And they're being persecuted by the Romans who were thinking that they had the good news. And yet they're feeding Christians to the wild beast, wrapping animal skins and bloody animals around Christians and feeding them to animals so that everybody could watch. And Christians were being fed. And we're told Jesus was with the wild beast. Be encouraged, Christians. Jesus has won the battle for you. So very interesting what, what Mark is trying to communicate to us, okay? And so then we're told about um, this reference to John the Baptist the clearest reference, in case you didn't connect the dots, is there's this reference in 2 Kings where they're trying to identify, who was this man who came out to meet you and told you these things? 2 Kings 1, 7, and 8. And they answered him, well, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, oh, it's Elijah the Tishbite. As soon as you described him, garment of hair, belt of leather around his waist, you know, they're wondering, who is that guy that gave you this message? And as soon as they tell him, it's dead tip away. Oh, that's Elijah. Well, how is, jo- how is Mark describing and all this stuff? He's not Bear grills. It's Elijah. He's, he's the new Elijah, okay? And so now he's telling them that I've come to do this baptism and that you need to come out and be baptized. So just as Israel failed in the wilderness, it's back to the wilderness. You've got to come to the Jordan. You remember, as they went into the promised land, they have to cross the, the Jordan River. So now we're going to go to the Jordan. And so the people are coming for baptism. And, they're, and, and apparently, I mean, John was big stuff. I mean, when it just says, you just read verse 5 and you read right over and it says, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem. I mean, he would have been bigger name than Tim Keller. He'd have been a bigger name than, than John Piper, whoever, John MacArthur, whoever the big names are. He's bigger than all of them. I mean, everybody is coming out there. And when they hear, I mean, when he sees the leaders for the first time and he tells them, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes. I mean, you don't think that's spread everywhere. You're not going to believe with this guy. You've got to come with me. You're coming with me. Next, next Saturday, we're going. We're going to the wilderness. You've got to see this. He is calling out the leaders and telling Jews that they got to get in the water. I mean, when you're dirty and you come into the house as a kid and you're filthy. I mean, I remember one time I, I tracked in. I stepped in dog dew. And I remember just right here in Gaithersburg, man, I was in big trouble. I didn't know it was on my feet. I walked right in the house and it's in the carpet. And, you know, Parents just yelling at me, like, what have you done, you know? Well, when you come in and you're all dirty, what does your mom say to you? To the shower. Take a shower. Or to the tub. If you're, if you're a Baptist, it's to the tub. If you're a Presbyterian, it's to the shower, right? So, so, so there you go. Like, instantly, to the tub. It's time. And here is John the, ba- the Baptist telling the, the, everybody in the tub, not just Gentiles, proselytes, they knew they had to be baptized, to be converted, but now everybody? And so Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, John the Baptist comes and says something incredible. 
I mean, they knew all about baptism because when a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, Gentile had to be baptized. The reason the Gentiles had to be baptized was simply this. The Gentile had been living an immoral life, a nasty life, a bad life. Therefore, the, the bath represented something. When you go to take a bath, you're acknowledging the fact that you're not fit for the presence of others. You're acknowledging the fact that you stink. You're acknowledging the fact you're ugly, you have all this stuff on you, you want to look good, you want to get your pores clean, you want to smell good, you take a bath. To take a bath is to acknowledge the fact that you're not fit for the presence of others because you're polluted, you're unclean. When the Gentiles were baptized, they understood that. Jews weren't baptized. But along comes John the Baptist and says, everybody in the water. You see, that's what's going on here. And so what John makes clear, though, is that his baptism is preparatory. It's an outward washing. It's not an inward washing. It's not the real thing. But the real Messiah who's coming and the real baptism that he's bringing, he's saying, I'm not even worthy to wash his feet. I'm not even worthy to do the most menial servant task. I mean, here's the big guy. He is the big kahuna. There isn't anybody bigger than John the Baptist. And he's saying, I am not even worthy to do the most servant task. The first thing a servant does is wash their feet when they come. He's not, I'm not even worthy to unloosen his sandal to do that. But when he comes, he's going to bring the real baptism, and he's going to change you from the inside out. And, he come, and so Jesus comes, and now Jesus is being baptized in the wilderness. So we got to follow some of this language. So hear me out, because there's some, some theology here. How is Israel referred to in the Old Testament, in the wilderness? Well, Hosea 11.1 1 says, Out of Egypt I called my son, and my son is Israel. And Israel was the son that went astray. Israel was the son that failed. So Israel is this son that is disobedient, goes astray. And Jesus is now coming as the son, as the true Israel as the one who's going to accomplish our righteousness. We're told in Matthew 3 that Jesus' baptism was to fulfill all righteousness. He's going to accomplish all of the law, and he's doing it all for us. It doesn't say he came confessing his sins because he didn't have any sins to confess. He comes confessing our sins. He comes repentant for us in our behalf. Everything he's doing is vicarious. It's as a substitute. But Jesus doesn't just parachute in, just, you know, glides into the stadium, you know, and, 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 and shows up at the cross and says, here I am. And, and, and all we tend to think about, oh, Jesus died on the cross for me, which is true, and we love that. But Jesus went to the wilderness for you. Where's your righteousness today? Was it that you were good this morning, that you were so good this morning to your children and to your spouse, and you did everything right, and you took a shower, and you feel good about yourself? It's Jesus went to the wilderness and did battle with Satan, and he perfected so that through one man's obedience, the many would be made righteous. And who's the one man's obedience? It, it's none of us. It's Jesus. Jesus goes to the wilderness. It's the wilderness. First thing Jesus does is he goes to the wilderness. And he meets John. And if you look back at your Bible, just look back at Psalm 78 for a minute. This wilderness theme is big. It's all over the Bible. And I just want to show you one place. Psalm 78, 15 to 19. Where we're reminded of the wilderness 
and where Israel failed and all that God was doing to provide for them. We're told he split rocks in the wilderness, verse 15. He gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. You remember, they'd crossed the Red Sea. Now they're, I mean, now they're, they're in this uh, wilderness wandering, but God is providing for them. He splits rocks, gives them drink. He made streams come out of the rock, cause water to flow down like rivers. Yet they still, yet they sin still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? How does 15 begin? In the wilderness. How does verse 19 end? In the wilderness. Where does God meet you? In the wilderness. Where are you right now, Christian? You're in the wilderness. Are you in the promised land yet? Have you made it to the promised land? Have you crossed over out of Egypt? You've been saved from your sin, delivered from the oppressor, delivered from Pharaoh, Satan. You've been saved, and now where do we struggle? Where do we struggle with God right now? Because it's hard. It's it's post-pandemic, and there's wilderness, and there's frustration, and there's a lot of grumbling and a lot of complaining. Even your pastor is doing a lot of grumbling and complaining. Pray for him. Jesus is the only one who did it perfectly. And the answer to the big question, can God spread a table in the wilderness? (laughs) Can God spread a table in the wilderness? It's right right here. It's right here. He spread a table in the wilderness, all right. You see, he went... The whole thing for us. He's bringing in this kingdom of God. And he's bringing in a restored kingdom. And he brings it. And then he says to us that he's going to baptize us now with the Holy Spirit. And so let me just say two things. A couple last things here concluding. First is, is that when Jesus' baptism comes, Mark is the only one that brings this out. Notice what it says about his baptism. When the voice comes down from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. By the way, that's going to be the big theme of the book. And hopefully we will cherish him like God does. But he is the beloved son. And it's declared here in the very middle of the book is the transfiguration. In the very middle of the transfiguration is God speaking. And he says, this is my beloved son. He says it again. So it begins with the book, it ends with the book of the centurion, and then right at zero focus in in chapter 9, this is my beloved son. But it says that the heavens were torn open. Do you see that? This is the only gospel that says that. Torn open. So Mark is pointing us back to Isaiah 64, which was the reference in your reflection verse in the bulletin. And and it's a prayer. It's like things are so bad in the wilderness for Israel and they're in exile and they're in the wilderness again and they're crying out and they cry out, oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would tear the heavens open and come down. Would you do it? Would Would you break open this great wall and just come and save us? And what is what is Mark saying? There's Jesus, and there's the Spirit coming down upon him. And God has fulfilled Isaiah 64:1 of rending the heavens, tearing it open. And the Spirit comes down upon the Son that here's the one who's going to save you in the wilderness. He's done everything for you. This is God in the flesh. He has come to make atonement for us. And interestingly, right when the Roman centurion confesses that surely this was the Son of God. You know what the very verse before it is? Is that the temple veil was torn 
in two from top to bottom. There's the tearing again. Is that God will be one with his people. He has come to, to dwell with us, to make us his people. He will make atonement, at one minute, because he comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, which is the theme verse of the book. And so, in conclusion, I want to share with you, if you've listened to Tim Keller at all, and I listen to him a lot, he talks about this one event in his life that transformed his life. And it was him sitting under Barbara Boyd's teaching in 1970, hard to believe it's over 52 years ago, in Colorado, and as a young man, he heard this lady speak, Barbara Boyd, and she said this. She said, if you want to invite me into your house and you say, come in, Barbara, but stay out, Boyd, I wouldn't know what to do because I'm Barbara Boyd. In fact, I couldn't even say this half is Barbara and this half is Boyd, so I'll just bring the half in because I'm Barbara. He says, she says, I'm Barbara and I'm all Boyd. I'm both, so you either get all of me or none of me. Then she said to us, if you say, I like the loving Jesus, I like the helping Jesus. I like the Jesus I can ask to help me through hard times, but I don't want the holy Jesus. I don't want the powerful Jesus. I don't want the Jesus who's great. You get no Jesus at all. And she said, think about this. If the distance between the earth and the sun was the thickness of a piece of paper, if the 96 million miles between the earth and the sun was the thickness of a piece of paper, do you realize that the distance from the earth to the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high, and just as the diameter of our little galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high, our little galaxy is just a speck of the universe, and the Bible says that Jesus Christ holds the whole universe by the word of his power, and then she said... And Jesus holds this universe with his pinky. And then she said, do you ask somebody like that into your life to be your assistant? To be your accomplice? To come and help you with all your plans and your kingdom and your agenda? I mean, the first words out of Jesus' mouth right after this is repent and believe. Because the kingdom of God's at hand. It's come. And so now Jesus comes and he gives the spirit to his people so that he would change us from the inside out. So the question is, are we being changed? Are we being changed? You see, you can't say I believe and Jesus is my savior, but then go about not conforming your life to his standards. When Jesus' kingdom breaks into our lives, the adulterer quits practicing adultery. The fornicator who's sleeping with his girlfriend says, I, I can't be doing that anymore. The gossiper embraces Christ and now he or she begins to put a muzzle on their tongues. The hateful person becomes loving. The jealous and envious person becomes content and is becoming content. The people pleaser now starts to become a God pleaser. The lustful pleasure seeker becomes a God seeker, finding a superior pleasure in God. The proud person starts to become humble. The lazy person starts to become diligent. The angry person starts to become meek. The impatient person starts to become patient. The harsh person starts to become gentle. The mean become kind. The wise become foolish. The worrier starts to trust God. The perfectionist finds his perfection in Christ. The, the sneaky quits sneaking. And the judgmental person begins to actually judge 
judge himself and the controller starts to let go and submit to God and the embittered heart starts to forgive and the, the wife finds a strange joy in following and trusting her husband and the husband finds a strange joy in loving his wife even when it's costly to death and his self-importance and his self-agenda and children start to obey and trust their parents and, and they see that their God is at work and, and God's children begin to sing new songs. They start to pray different prayers. They start to lead different lives. They start living for a different king. They start living a whole different life. Because the kingdom of God is broken in. And that's what God is doing. And he loves us. And he's made us perfect in his son. Because he went to the wilderness. And he has perfected us. And now he is, by his one sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We're on our way. Let's pray. Father, strengthen us in the wilderness. You who have made a table in the wilderness, thank you for the privilege to meet you here. Minister your grace, your power, your forgiveness. Help us to repent and believe afresh. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.